Welcome to The Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour on CIUT 89.5 FM or your local community radio station or your podcast platform, Harbinger Media Network. My name is David Franklin Erwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Hostetter. And I am Lauren Latour. Welcome back, Lauren. Today, Stefan will be inter- interviewing Mr. Tim Gray, the Executive Director of Environmental Defense, about Doug Ford's reversal on the Green Belt. What it meant what led up to it and now by police investigation that's been opened up against the people involved in that scandal exactly it was was originally the R, the opp but they passed it on to the rcp rcmp as a way to avoid appearances of conflict of interest that's the word they used oh they they they, they took the job away from the opp well the opp gave it away oh they're like we're too we're too complicit <laughs> yeah i mean like, yeah they're just like this feels like a federal problem. All right. And we're going to do some climate news. We're going to do United Auto Workers, some insurance company stuff. But first, I just wanted to mention what I find to be just the hideous and completely insane unification of like Canadian media and politicians against sort of Palestine as a whole, it would appear to be. For instance, we have an Ontario NDP. MPP, Member of Provincial Parliament, Sarah Jama in Hamilton, simply stating, uh, quote, I call for immediate ceasefire and de-escalation. We must look to, to the solution to this endless cycle of death and destruction, end all occupation of Palestinian land and end apartheid, and hashtag free Palestine. And she was condemned by the current NDP leader, Merritt Stiles, who just said, you should... Uh, retract your message because that's not what we believe and premier doug ford was like this mpp needs to resign and the interim leader of the um ontario liberal party john fraser also said that the mpp needed to resign because of this literally she's just like telling that like just like stating facts and because we're in this insane frenzy uh, we all have to side with just immediately with whoever our geopolitical defense allies may be. And it's just completely nuts. That's such a neutral statement. All she's saying is that she doesn't completely condemn every single Palestinian person and any alignment they might have with the conflict that's been going on. I immediately logged on to Twitter to see what my MPP, who is also an NDP and a pretty progressive person, Joel Harden, said, but Elon Musk's Twitter is failing me right now. It's fully just like a, a, a dysfunctional website. So I can't figure that out. But now I'm curious. Maybe it's just because he said that it was like apartheid, which I mean, it by definition is, isn't it? It's just two two legal systems for two different ethnic people on the, on the same land, right? Yeah, no, like it's 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 an apartheid system. And it's and, and and Palestine is occupied territory. Some people in a really gross way skew any support for Palestine as like, I think there's a lot of bad faith actors that claim it's anti-Semitism. It's not. Yeah. Hamas is being equated with Palestine and Jewish people are being equated with Israel. And it just is incredibly racist and insane position on like for for anyone to take for both of those. Like and especially as the neo-fascist Israeli government is literally on social media being like we want to essentially kill them all and then we're just like yes go do that like and 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 to force our politicians and our media to to also play that role um like even olivia chow was originally originally tweeted like 
I condemn violence on both sides. And then she was attacked for that and just had to be like, okay, actually, we, we love Israel kind of stuff. Until she retweeted this statement being like, actually, I don't even think any Palestinian protests should even happen. She called a Palestinian protest a Hamas protest. So even she is having to be like making that false equation, which is just madness. And then in the UK, waving a Palestinian flag or singing a chant advocating freedom for Arabs in the region may be now criminalized. Because like the Palestinian flag itself, some people want to criminalize in the UK. So I don't know, it's just, it's just crazy. I know this this is like such a cliche, but like Democracy Now! is is still one of the only news outlets presenting really good coverage on what's been going down um, that isn't sort of like explicitly anti-Palestine um, and Islamophobic. So would would encourage listeners to to check out Democracy Now!'s work if, if they're looking for kind of good explainers and they're kind of confused about the situation. Yeah. And if I can add two other recommendations, uh, one is we, interestingly from the London Review of Books, from an author named Amjad Iraqi, who is a Arab Israeli, it's just a, one of their blog posts called "Get Out of There Now." And then the other one is uh, more recent from Naomi Klein in the in the Guardian. I've seen this a couple times referred to as you know like Israel's nine eleven, and the one thing you really hope doesn't happen is a coalesce, coalescence around sort of a right wing response to this, which we did very much see in in uh, during you know after September eleventh in the United States. And so, you know, if we're going to find a way out of it that does not do that, I think we have to start finding some other places to, 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 to read and learn from. And those are two things I would recommend. All right, we're going to do a music break and come back with some climate news. The Green Majority is entirely listener-supported, and we would take this opportunity to graciously thank every individual donating to our Patreon page. Thank you very much. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, home of such podcasts as Alberta Advantage, The Breach Show, and The Pullback Podcast, as well as over 40 other excellent shows. We are back with the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM or your local community radio station or your podcast application, Harbinger Media Network. We're going to do some climate news. Is this climate news? Yes, it is. The United Auto Workers in the United States have gained huge ground in their fight against exploitation by the big three automakers, GM, Ford, and Stellantis. Uh, The UAW has been striking 17% of their members, representing five factories and dozens of warehouses, uh, in order to increase profit sharing and workers' benefits. Uh, They were poised to call another strike at a GM assembly plant, but pulled it back after GM agreed to include battery plant workers 
in the UAW's National Labor Agreement. So the people who make the batteries for GM's new electric vehicles will be included in the United Auto Workers Agreements with the big companies. Uh, Sean Fain, president of UAW, said, quote, We were about to shut down GM's largest moneymaker in Arlington, Texas. The company knew those members were ready to walk immediately. Just that threat provided a transformative win. GM has now agreed in writing to place their electric battery manufacturing under our national master agreement. So I have seen this be called the biggest win for a just transition yet, which is pretty fascinating given the scope of it. And the reason why, or one of the reasons why, is that the battery plant conversation wasn't actually even in the negotiation. Like they had been told beforehand that this was not going to fall under the under the jurisdiction. Like the because of the fact that like, the battery plants. Yeah, so I'm going to skip that. I don't exactly know why it wasn't, but it was not. Um, and so the fact that they were able to use a strike to actually increase their eventual union size by the fact that these future battery workers will be unionized is a remarkable victory. And and then the second part of this, which I think makes it noteworthy especially, is the fact that it also begins and helps continue to push back the notion that the movement for new... Um, for green energy and green transitions will remove unionized jobs. Because one of the big fights and one of the big messaging coming from Republicans often is that, you know, the coal miners are unionized, but right now, you know, the renewable energy workers are not. And so they're using this to drive a wedge in between sort of this idea of big labor and in the green revolution. And it's something that we really have to find ways to combat. And so the fact that the UAW was able to basically take this whole new segment of a growing market of battery manufacturing in the United States and get that to be agreed to be unionized going forward is, A, takes away that weapon from the sort of the right and the Republicans who are fighting against it. And also it means many more union jobs for people who live in the areas of these places, which is fantastic news. Yeah, this was, um, I'm not going to lie, something that I was hadn't hadn't even really been on my radar up until a couple of weeks ago when I heard some really good coverage of this, I think out of maybe even the New York Times, it might have been on the daily, but they were talking about actually a position that that Biden was in. And I'm not and I'm not sort of like bemoaning, oh, poor Biden, but but the situation that he found himself in, which is he is a president um, has been trying to really align himself with union organizers and and, and organized labor. Um, it's like one of one of his goals is that he wants to be the most union friendly president that the you that the states has ever had um and then on the flip side he also wants to be seen as a climate and clean energy champion um and it's not that these two things were at odds but like you said the republicans have done a really really good job of sort of narratively pitting these two things against each other like you said because because um oftentimes renewable energy workers um and renewable sort of like energy um, offshoot workers like in, in electric vehicles, for instance, aren't unionized. So, for instance, he showed up on a a picket line. He showed up on an, on an active picket line for the auto workers, which is something that apparently no sitting president had ever done before. 
showing up on a picket line, not just an auto one, but in general, period, full stop, which seems bananas to me, especially given the power of labor organizing in like the 30s. But anyway, apparently it was the first time anybody had ever done that. And yet it was still sort of like this thing where it's like, well, I thought, but uh, why are you showing up on a union on a union line when on the flip side, you're you're supporting electric vehicle development? How can you be doing both? So so the fact that the unions were able to clinch this deal and make it so that battery um to build builder battery manufacturers my god words um are now going to be unionized is is a huge huge win like you said for just transition but also for us to be able to um push back on that right-wing narrative that what's good for workers isn't good for quote-unquote the environment as well because it's very much not the case um and i think to me this is this 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 isn't going to be a coherent eloquent thought but it's like there's something to be said here for the ways in which yes tesla to talk about teslas has done a good job of maybe like glamorizing the idea of electric vehicle ownership and making it sexy and high-end and aspirational but at the same time i don't think has done very much for something like a just transition and that sort of systemic transformation because what elon musk has done at every single step is make sure that his workers are not unionized make sure that his workers are are overworked and underpaid and really exploited so what we've unfortunately got ourselves right now is the sort of um highest profile electric vehicle that somebody can buy and align themselves with from like a personal brand standpoint is also something that is inherently um, quite regressive and not exactly as left and progressive as as we would hope electric vehicle, not that electric vehicle ownership is, is inherently progressive. It's, it's not, but, but you know what I mean? Like for, it's, 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 it's kind of created this really nasty situation um, whereby like the electric vehicle of note is not actually something that is the sort of bastion of progress that that we could theoretically want it to be yeah from yeah. a branding standpoint and not that this all comes down to branding but you know what i'm trying to say yeah well i mean for branding but also a lifestyle standpoint right like what the the tesla is almost a perfect gift to the idea that environmentalism is bourgeois Ooh, 100% that's that's exactly what it is it's that it's that it gives Every Republican, every right winger, something to point to and say that like, oh, those those coastal elites and their Teslas and their climate action, that's not relevant to you. That's harming you because yeah. it, it, at least as far as Teslas go, they're kind of right. Yeah, exactly. You know, like it's yeah, you can say whatever you want about its improvement of the overall market. But in reality, yeah, like here's a hundred thousand dollar car that might drive into a wall and that worked its workers into the bone to try to build in the first place. And none of those things are what we should be looking for when we ask ourselves, you know, what we want in a in a just transition in a, in a new world. And so I, I do think that wins like this. And then the other one I'll mention before we go to the next story is just that time and time again, some of the biggest wins we see come from when unions are successfully organized from within. You know, some of the really progressive work that happened in New York City, or sorry, New York State, came from successful lobbying of the unions within New York to ensure that there'd be, when they did make a big push into renewable energy, those jobs would be unionized and that they would, you know, 
try to get to 100% renewable at a much faster rate. And so some of the biggest wins in terms of bills and things passed consistently come from internal la- labor organizing that then use their collective power to push push for win- push for wins. And I think that should be something that we really remind ourselves consistently as we move forward in terms of how we should continue to organize. A new report from the Ensure Our Future campaign has found that in just the last five years, 62% of the reinsurance market and 39% of the primary insurance market have made moves against new coal projects. Um, Munich Re... Apparently, different article citing the same report, which I did not read, um, <laughs> also said that like 38% of the reinsurance companies were also making moves against uh, oil, oil and gas. Anyway, so Munich Re and Swiss Re have now committed to stop insuring or investing in new oil and gas as well. The insurance companies are are concerned that fossil fuel companies are being sued too much by governments and activists, and that climate change itself is hurting the insurance industry everywhere. The author of the report, Peter Peter Bosshard, said, quote, Insurance is the Achilles heel of the fossil fuel industry and has the power to accelerate the transition to clean energy. Now, listen to this. If it were the actual Achilles heel, it wouldn't just have the power to accelerate the transition. It would have the power to immediately affect it. So a bit, a bit, of, a, a mean, bit of an overstated metaphor, maybe. I mean, I mean, maybe a bit- not. I mean, I think they do have the ability to immediately do it. They're just not going to, right? Like, if insurance companies decided to just not actually in, uh, insure fossil fuel development, then it would it'd stop happening tomorrow. Like, you could imagine maybe a world where fossil fuel companies together come together, create their own insurance company that then protects them. But Munich Re is a reinsurance company. And so at that point, you're talking about the sort of secondary market for insurance. And I think in the next the next uh, segment, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But but yeah, I mean, like insurance companies are undoubtedly very important for both the protection and adaptation side of things or of dealing with it when it happens, but also from the standpoint of, you know, everything is everything we build ever is insured. And so if you can attack, attack insurance companies like we've seen successfully in some places, like I believe some some pipelines have successfully backed off because of uh, or some insurance companies have backed off pipelines because of pressure, you can really make some things happen if you succeed doing it. And unfortunately, insurance companies so far seem much happier removing coverage from places where your house might burn down than removing coverage from the pipeline that's causing your place to burn down. But it's certainly a place to pay your attention to. Yeah, no, and and the fact that like you said the the reinsurer, the 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 financial insurance body that backs the insurance companies, the fact that 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 they're expressing this language and this and this sort of um I don't know, willingness to shift might be kind of too uh might might not be entirely accurate, but that kind of that, that signaling that they're considering it. I think, like you said, I think that's where the kind of hope comes from. Because if we were just hearing this from like the like straight up insurance companies, like I'm my insurance company, if if that's who we were hearing it from, I wouldn't feel quite as hopeful is a strong word, but I wouldn't feel quite as hopeful because my suspicion would be um, that that what you said uh, could play out is exactly what would happen, Stefan. You would get. Um, oil and gas companies coming together to to form their own insurance body um or alternatively if we're talking about like um individual like consumer level interest for like homeowners or 
et cetera. Um, what you would instead get is like sort of a, a, a tiered insurance system, or you would get a bunch of wealthy people who fine, they don't really need their, their beautiful mansion. That's coastal to be insured. They'll just, they'll either leave it or they'll pay over and over and over and over and over again for those repairs to their home. Cause they don't really need the insurance payout in order to, I don't know, repair after a hurricane or repair after a flood or whatever. And unfortunately, what you get is the people that actually need to be insured couldn't ever possibly be insured. Um, so so that's kind of my initial fear is that it's not actually um, the bastion of hope that that we're hope that we imagine it could be, um, because all it really does is throw into relief the stratification of, of our economic systems. But like you said, because the reinsurer is starting to talk this talk, that that's sort of where things could actually meaningfully turn themselves around a little bit. All right. And finally, as stated, insurance companies are also pulling away from residential and farmland uh, that are now exposed to new weather patterns because of climate change. The president of a major risk management company recently told the American Congress, quote, Insurance companies have been withdrawing from high-risk areas around wildfire and flood in particular. Just as the U.S. economy was overexposed to mortgage risk in 2008, the economy today is overexposed to climate risk. And Lois partially reports for Grist, quote, as climate change intensifies extreme weather and claims pile up, the system is being thrown into disarray. Insured losses from natural disasters in the United States now routinely approach $100 billion a year compared to $4.6 billion in 2000. As a result, the average homeowner has seen their premiums spike 21% since 2015. And perhaps unsurprisingly, the states most likely to have disasters like Texas and Florida have some of the most expensive insurance rates. That means that ever more people are foregoing coverage, leaving them vulnerable and driving prices even higher as the number of people paying premiums and sharing risk shrinks. Yeah, so this is the story that actually got me thinking a little bit more about insurance for this uh, episode because the article from Grist that part some of us pulled from is called "As Climate Risks Mount, the Insurance Safety Net is Collapsing," and it is it's a little bit concerning because it is very true that these insurance companies are realizing that they are going to have to charge more and more and more and more, and the reinsurance companies that protect those those companies from you know, massive payouts are are also seeing this danger. And th- what's interesting about it and why I think it's apt to compare it to the housing crisis is that previously it was pretty consistent. One, it was that what, the way that the insurance companies previously protected themselves from having too many payouts the same year and sort of running out of money was that they would diversify where in the, con- the country they would have each sort of set of insurance. So like if you got housing insurance, there'd be some in the coast, some somewhere else, some somewhere else, so that it was deeply unlikely that you'd have a forest fire in one place, a flood in another place, and a hurricane hitting the third. And so they were able to protect, you know, one of those places when this thing happened with the premiums from the other places. Now, in the same way that in 2008, the whole housing crisis collapsed across the nation, the same thing is happening, but with natural disasters. So that the insurance companies are having years where there are forest fires, floods, you know, tornadoes, and hurricanes all taking out too much of uh, of of the of the of the area, or of of 
property so that they are actually running out of money. Because in the same way that they were guessing that all of the housing prices couldn't collapse across the country, they're presuming that extreme weather couldn't get drastically worse across the country. And of course, that's exactly what's happening with climate change. Well, and I imagine that's exacerbated. Keep in mind, listeners, I'm I'm not well versed in this. I'm I'm reading these articles for the first time, um, or or was reading them for the first time today. But I was introduced to the concept of I guess California has a state-run insurance body. Um, the acronyms FAIR, F-A-I-R, and um, and yeah, it's talking about sort of this accumulation of three hundred thirty-two million dollars. Um, well, a three hundred thirty-two million dollar deficit. Um. As a, as a result of sort of like the catastrophic wildfires they've experienced lately, et cetera, et cetera. So I imagine that sort of that concept you were talking about, Stefan, whereby it's like, oh, well, if you have like a diverse housing market all across the country, it's not all going to be hit at the same time. But when you're looking at something at a, on, a, on a smaller regional scale, like a statewide plan, like California or say Florida or say Texas, I imagine those um, those risks are magnified because especially if you get like a state with a smaller footprint there, it's more likely that a larger percentage of that state is going to be affected by a given natural disaster. Um, and, and, it's, and it's not that I'm not saying state run insurance isn't a good idea. It is. We all know I'm down for state run basically everything. But but you're just seeing seeing these risks play out in real time. Um, and I am really glad that I'm not the one that has to come up with the solutions to this because I I don't see it. I don't see it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like the only like, I mean, one answer would be a national public insurance, obviously. But ultimately, the answer is that we just cannot protect everything from the destruction that we have wrought, right? Like we have brought on an unprecedented amount of destruction from climate change. And so that is not going to be insurable in any real way until we start taking significant efforts to do adaptation and mitigation work, right? Like that's the only answer. And by that, what do you mean? Like moving people around to different places, protecting, salvaging what can be salvaged, like that kind of thing? Or yeah, salvaging like, what can be salvaged. Like a grand relocation effort? Or? Like, like, I think in some cases, yeah, mass relocation is going to have to be a thing and figuring out a way to do that in a way that is equitable and that doesn't just leave those who are most vulnerable and and like of a lower socioeconomic status to like languish in these like zones that we have chosen to well not chosen to that we've been forced to write off is going to be incredibly important. And it's where it the other thing. So it's like, yeah, we've got mitigation, we've got adaptation, and we've got the third one that I'm always talking about, loss and damage. We're going to like loss and damage is something that's been talked about at the international level for decades now. And that's a concept that we're going to have to figure out how to introduce to our own communities and our and, and the regions that are sort of like most at risk here domestically as well. Because like, yeah, how do you deal with loss and damage within a domestic Within a within a domestic forum, you know what I mean. How are we making sure that those who are losing their homes and losing their communities are being, I don't compensated seems like a weird word, but but being taken care of financially and from a resourcing standpoint. Yeah, and 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 then along with that, well, I mean, this is part of adaptation, but some of the adaptation work will look like recreating wetlands and stuff, right? Like there's a lot of re-naturalizing that needs to happen to create the systems where we can keep 
people safe in these scenarios. And, you know, that's only one piece of it, but it's a part of it. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know this is something that, like, I know a lot of, like, environmentalists love to point to, but, like, in the Netherlands, where in certain spaces, I can't remember what the exact process is. It, it had some kind of, like, beautiful, quite, like, fairy tale, la di word, but, like, essentially, like, seeding land to to floods again and understanding that, like, yes, this is a place that we had um, – constructed dikes and levees and we had inhabited before and that's no longer what we're doing and we're like returning returning the land to to the river or to the ocean or or whatever that body of water that's encroaching on that that's reclaiming that space on its own um might be i need to remember that word i'll find it i'll say it next week all right we'll go to a music break and come back with stefan speaking with mr tim gray of environmental defense about the Decision to sell the green belt, reverse the decision, and now the investigation of corruption by our glorious, glorious royal police force. <laughs> Stay tuned. <laughs> My name is Stefan Hostetter, and I am here with Tim Gray, the Executive Director of Environmental Defense, to talk about all things Greenbelt. And there's some breaking news as this interview is just being recorded on Tuesday, and so we'll talk about that as well. But thank you so much for being here, Tim. Thanks for having me. So for folks who might not be as familiar, can you just sort of give an overview of how the Ontario government sort of got into this whole mess in the first place? Yeah, for sure. And I mess that it is. You know, I think this all began, you know, quite soon after they were elected. I think the first rumblings of just how bad this was likely to get, oddly enough, came when the Elections Ontario reported their donation that you, you, you must report as third party, which would have been December of 2018. And we saw at that time that the Ontario Proud online attack machine that operated through Facebook during the, the, the election, that that had been almost completely funded by sprawl developers, those who ended up getting Greenbelt land. So $500,000 of, of spending on attack ads on Facebook favoring the incumbent government, principled by Madame Holmes, which you know, is a very large sprawl developer, one of the largest in North America, actually. So we kind of knew right from that time that the new government owed a huge debt to the, the sprawl development industry. And of course, right around that same time, we saw the introduction of a bill that would have opened the green belt to development, of course, contrary to what the, the premier had promised. So it was quite early on in this government's mandate that they pivoted away from the promise they made during the election campaign to never touch the green belt to very eagerly looking to touch it. So that was that was probably the first sign. And then, you know, more things came after that, which we can dive into. Yeah, for sure. And so from there, we obviously know that we've gotten pretty far. You know, the Greenbelt was opened and then now unopened. And so maybe you can take us through that timeline as well. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a broader story, you know, that does really tie into this, this you know, the money trail, which, you know, 
explains a lot of things in our world. And so everything from the attacks on the green belt to the rolling back of wetland protection, attacks on conservation authorities, imposition of massive urban boundary expansions in many cities throughout the greater Golden Horseshoe. This is all part of a theme, right? All part of trying to remove any kind of impediment to massive land speculation by well-connected property developers. The Greenbelt attacks are, you know, kind of the tip of the iceberg of this entire kind of corrupt process that has gone on uh, for the last five years. And I think, you know, rightly so, the public public imagination was really captured by the attacks on the Greenbelt. You know, it's two million acres, it's farmland, it's forests, it's protection for headwater streams. It's meant to be permanent. It's got a boundary around it. If you go out through the Greater Golden Horseshoe, you can see the signs everywhere. It's hiking trails, it's local food. So it exists both physically and legally, but it also ex- exists in our collective minds as citizens of Canada and I'm a particular of this province. So when the government decided to, you know, do the bidding of developers and you know try to open parts of it to development, you know, naturally people really wanted to defend, you know, that particular property, you know, from these incursions. And so I think that's what you know, really motivated so many people to engage. But the most recent round, after we defeated them in the fall of fall and winter of 2018, started last November. So November of 2022. They announced that they were going to remove 7,400 acres of land from the Greenbelt. And this was in 15 sites, but about 85 or 90% of the land was contained within very two large areas, one right beside Rouge National Urban Park and the other on Hamilton Mountain. Incredibly valuable sites ecologically and from a farmland perspective, also real anchors to stopping massive sprawling urban boundary expansion within the Greater Golden Horseshoe. So very, very controversial. And immediately, you know, the public responded in a really a strong way to this, you know, in multiple avenues, federal government got involved, et cetera. But also right from the beginning, it smelled really, really bad in terms of how the entire process was done. Particular developers that had properties there who had just recently purchased them, the whole thing smelled of like insider dealing to people that are known to be very well connected to the current government, et cetera, et cetera. So ever since that time, public resistance has been growing. The Auditor General, of course, launched uh, an investigation. The Integrity Commissioner launched an investigation. The OPP announced they were reviewing the case. And of course, we know where that's got to today, and we can dig into that a little bit later. But yeah, so multiple public agencies and the public itself and the media all digging into this. And You know, I'm not, you know, I don't have uh, particular inside connections with this government, but I think it was within 48 hours that I knew the broad outlines of what had happened just through my, you know, having worked in this space, working at Queen's Park, working uh, on public policy for so long. You know, this was done in a way that was a total violation of public interest. But done almost openly, like kind of, you know, kind of shoving up our collective noses and saying, yeah, we're going to do this. It's going to favor our friends and you're just going to have to like it. (laughs) And I think the the public was pretty clear, like, no, we're not going to like it and we're going to do something about it. Yeah, for sure. And so I would love to dive into that for a bit, because one thing that I found both impressive and fascinating about this campaign 
was how consistent the pressure felt. Like even in the lulls where there wasn't those bombshell news stories coming out, it felt like all the time there was this public pressure to get the this to be unreversed, which, you know, I think at the beginning, you know, the Ontario government has very much proven itself that it does not like taking back ideas. You know, it's used things like the notwithstanding clause previously to just force things through. And so the fact that this public pressure was so sustained despite such opposition was was really interesting. And so I'm curious from from your side of things, again, you were part of a, a you know a coalition of groups working on this, but how did you keep up that kind of pressure? Yeah, this goes back again to just after the last election when it became very clear with conversations with cabinet ministers, et cetera, that they would not be listening to evidence or data around making uh, environmental decisions. And we were told you know, that quite clearly by uh, senior cabinet ministers, you know, within a couple of months after the last, you know, the 2018 election. So, you know, we really realized that we were going to have to, you know, not be having policy conversations with elected officials at Queen's Park, but would have to, you know, kind of go to ground uh, and work at a community level to ensure that we could protect environmental and social values in this province. So when the Greenbelt attacks occurred in November last year, this is at the end of four years of, of working at that community level, webinars, town hall meetings, you know, the proverbial church basement kind of organizing sessions, et cetera. So we're kind of ready and geared up for a riding by riding, community by community kind of fight when this stuff happens. And you'll recall, of course, that over the months after that announcement was made. There were literally hundreds of uh, public demonstrations. They never ended. We had people uh, out uh, in front of MPP offices all through the winter. It wasn't a particularly hard winter, but still it's winter. Not not the best time in the chair of the out holding a sign in front of an MPP office. Advertising, you know, radio ads, billboards, continuous stream of information you know, coming out of the media even during some of those periods of, of lull, creating opportunities for, for media coverage. So we knew it would be kind of a long game, but we were convinced, you know, right from the beginning that, you know, an attack on the green belt could be, you know, that fight could be won. In fact, early on when the government was first elected, you know, I was talking with uh, the Minister of Municipal Affairs staff at the time, and I said, if you guys ever do go after the green belt, uh, you will live to regret it. I, I guarantee you, you will live to regret it. And we really made sure, I think, as a, as a society in this province, that that came true. And I think it's a, a real testament to people's willingness to use democratic tools to fight for things they believe in. Yeah, for sure. And so we've talked about it a little bit, but to keep, sort of keep parsing out the story as we move forward, as time went on, you know, thanks to some incredible work from different media sources like the Narwhal, the Toronto Star, more and more of the actual specifics of some of this corruption was was released. And so can you tell us about what those exact things were and how that sort of began to tip the scales? Yeah, again, I think what you know came out of the formalized investigations done by the Auditor General and the Integrity Commissioner was to really bring the details, you know, the names, the times, the dates, of how it was that the development industry worked very closely with the provincial government to have particular properties removed from the Greenbelt and, and, and that massive profit to them. Because as you can imagine, lands that are uh, permanently and legislatively off limits to development 
that have to be kept as farmland or forests have a very different market value than they do once they've been removed from that protection and then can have houses built on them. I mean, we're talking orders of magnitude increase in value. And I think one of the most important things from a, a public understanding perspective that the Auditor General did was put an actual number on that increase in value. So if you recall, that was $8.3 billion. And you know, we've been talking about this, and the media have been talking about this for months, about, about the speculative value of, of doing this and how unleashing the idea that the whole Greenbelt could be opened up for development basically encouraged developers to now start going out there and driving up property values so that farmers wouldn't be able to afford to own any of it because it all is kind of sitting there waiting to be a subdivision if the legal protections are removed. But the Auditor General, by putting that $8.3 billion value on it, uh, really brought home how much uh, benefit that these people on the inside track who were talking directly to the chief of staff of the Minister of Municipal Affairs, you know, what a deal they got and, uh, you know, and, and how they're tied financially and through their donations and other ways to the current provincial government. That makes, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so... I'm curious, and, and maybe this didn't happen, so you can tell me if this was not it, but I imagine like as we got closer to sort of this decision, the things you've been hearing and the influences probably changed. And, and it, uh, certainly, of course, as ministers started resigning, that must have been an indication that you were sort of getting closer to some sort of significant movement on this. And so from a tactics perspective, how did you change your, your tactics or, or what did you think about as those you know pieces started to fall into place? Yeah, I mean, we were we were concerned that even as the scandal aspects of this escalated public attention and public outrage I mean, across the political spectrum. I mean, what's happened now, of course, is that very large portion of the, you know, the, the population who voted for the current government is enraged. So even their core kind of voter base is very angry. So that's obviously very dangerous for a government in the long term is to start, you know, making people angry. But even as that uh, escalate and you know the the chances of you know criminal charges or, or other things coming forward escalated. We were very concerned that he, that the the policy about opening the greenbelt wouldn't be reversed, right? Especially as the government doubled down, you know, appointed a new minister and said, "Oh, well, you didn't like having 15 areas removed from the greenbelt. Well, we're going to launch a review and we're going to consider 800 removals." Then, you know, this is what you get for you know, speaking up and speaking too loudly, you know, we're going to smack you down and, and make you regret it. So we knew we had a, a bigger fight ahead of us. But I think, you know, after that, we really decided to double down both in terms of the radio advertising, other things that we we're doing just to get that message out to the public. But also all of our community partners uh, felt enraged and reinvigorated. So we started seeing hundreds and thousands of people showing up at, at the rallies that started rolling out right after those reports came out. And, you know, in places like Hamilton, you know, people were being bussed from downtown Hamilton out to the, you know, the arena in Ancaster because there's nothing downtown big enough to hold the crowd. So the MPPs were at the receiving end of this, you know, endless numbers of phone calls and, and public in front of their offices. And, you know, I also think that, you know, it, it's quite likely that, there was the beginnings of you know what we now know today is the reality seeping into cabinet that the RCMP was moving to formalize the criminal aspect of this investigation. So when that starts to be the conversation in caucus, 
and a cabinet that you've got a situation where you you know can't leave your office and can't answer the phones because there's so many angry constituents and uh, you know you've got the police breathing down your neck you know it becomes a time that it's i think time to backtrack and you know clearly that's you know what the premier did 10 days ago yeah for sure and that is a fantastic segue to where we are today because as you mentioned the the RCMP has been getting looked into this, and there's some news. So can you break the news for us? I mean, again, this will be out on Friday. They'll probably have heard it, but can you tell us what's happening today? Yeah, so just just got back from from lunch and uh, saw online and the media calls that started coming in is that the RCMP has uh, formalized announced it's formalized the investigation, and its uh, sensitive investigations uh, unit is taking over. Obviously, when you're investigating. You know, the, the the government of a province for criminal activity, you know, you want to have some people that are fairly professional at uh, doing this kind of thing. So I think that's what all of us have been looking for for a long time. Um, and the reason for that is that the, the investigative powers of the police are significantly greater than that of the Auditor General or of the Integrity Commissioner. So if you want to uh, get access to phone records, uh, we know that the the premier has been using burner phones, for example, through most of his tenure. If you want access to off-government server email, if you want access to bank records, then you need search warrants for that. And those powers, of course, are under the criminal code and rest with police. So you know, we, we saw the transfer of this file from the OPP, who originally had it, to the RCMP. And that was because of a stated concern around perceptions of conflict of interest. Those were never elaborated on, but anyway, the, the file was transferred to the RCMP. And now that we see the, the announcement of a formalized uh, criminal investigation, I think uh, we're very much hoping that some of these pieces of information that were beyond the reach of the people that have done such a good job so far will in fact be available to the police. And that you know, if there's a criminal activity that's happened here, that we will see charges uh, made. Yeah, man. It's amazing. The story just keeps going. The breadcrumbs here just kept going and going and going and going and going. And the fact that we're here now with, what, three different ministers, I believe, have now resigned. There's an RCMP investigation. You know, as you said, there are there were reasons to believe that this is something that might have happened at the beginning of all of this. But it's certainly, certainly quite the story. It's it's incredible, really. And I think that as more attention is paid to this, I think what's gone on out there on the landscape in terms of changes to planning rules, environmental protection rules, you know, the scope and scale uh, and the future impacts on uh, prosperity, environmental protection, long-term competitiveness, quality of life, all the things that we care about in this region, how draconian the impacts have been and how much they have favored a narrow interest group over the public interest. I think we'll really, you know, there'll be more more room for all those stories because the common denominator in all of this is favoring whatever um, the development industry wanted. No questions asked. Whatever you guys want, you're going to get it. And I've never seen anything like it in all my times working with governments across the country, both federally and provincially. Such abdication of responsibility for protecting the public interest, which they were elected to force to do as, as our government favoring the narrow interests and the, and the immediate financial return of a very small portion of our society. Yeah, for sure. And so as we move to my last couple of questions, one of the things I would love to get from you and, and sort of your team more generally is 
some thoughts on what learnings we should take from this and what learnings the environmental movement, you know, there's many more fights that are ongoing right now. And so I always try to like to learn from our successes. And so are there any thoughts that you have from what worked in this process and what we could share with our listeners who are, you know, fighting similar fights? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, after the announcement was made that the Greenbelt attacks would be reversed, we must have received hundreds and hundreds of emails here in the office. And there's a common theme to a, a large number. Of them. Some of them were just purely celebratory, which is great. But a lot of them were saying, you know, I didn't believe you when you said that if we just came out to one more rally or did one more thing, it would make any difference. Like, Doug Ford runs roughshod over everything, you know, and you know what, what can we do with the premier acts? And, you know, he's in power and I'm just a little person. And But I showed up anyway and I took part and I put up a sign and I talked to my neighbors and I talked to my family and we actually won. So I think that's the, the, the major thing to take from this is that, you know, when something is really awful and you see it happen and your friends and family can see that it's happening, yeah, do something about it. You know, there's more to democracy than just showing up at the polls. You know, we know in the last election that it was very, very low turnout. And we, you know, we didn't build our system in this country so that the only expression of the rule of law and democracy is, is at the polling booth. And whoever wins gets to do whatever they want. You know, and unfortunately, there's become a trend, I think, in this country of uh, governments thinking that if they win the election, then that's the only mandate that they need and they don't need to do anything else. They need to never ask permission. They never need to consult. They need never need to consider the broader public interest. They can just do what they want. And I think the public really showed this government that that's not true. And we all need to learn from that and take both the, you know, the, the tactics that, that were used during this campaign, but also the, the, the mindset into future uh, conversations about attacks by governments that are really overreaching what they were elected to do. And there was never a mandate from the public of Ontario to do these things. Never talked about it. In fact, the only mention was the green belt and the promise was never to touch it. So there's no mandate and the people were outraged and, and responded in, in, in kind. Yeah. That feeling of, of, of complete giving up is something I can certainly relate to in some of these conversations because it does just feel so, you, you feel so powerless, especially with things like the outstanding clause, where even when you can prove it's illegal, they can still say, no, never mind, we're doing it. And although what's interesting is the, the two examples I think we've seen of this government backing down has been when even despite that, groups have gone after it. You know, the, we saw that, that with with the unions going, trying to stop the, the, that, that previous bill and then also here with folks. And so, very quickly, can you just talk a little bit about the tactics that you did use to do this? Yeah, I mean, there's many. I mean, you mentioned some of them. We talked through some of them. You know, I think the, you know, the, the ground swell of support, making it clear to the entire government caucus that they were at risk. I mean, ultimately, I think that's what causes most governments to pivot. And this one in particular, you mentioned the notwithstanding clause with uh, the unions. I think they made it very clear that you know, they were going to shut down the province, right? And the rest of the, the government, I think, probably said in a caucus meeting, I wasn't there, but I would imagine said, you know, we're not really up for this. You need to think about a different approach. And I know that that's exactly what happened with the Greenbelt is that, you know, you've now alienated maybe 85, 90% of the population of the province. And there's no path forward that doesn't make this worse for the next number of years. What are you going to do about it? And I think as the leader of a political party and as the premier, at some point, 
know, you have a, a, a caucus you have to answer to. It's still a parliamentary democracy. And if you've got most of your caucus feels like maybe they have less chance of getting elected next time, you're probably not super happy. And if they don't want you around for the next election, I don't know. I don't know what happened in that conversation, but clearly uh, a complete pivot from doubling down two weeks before until that announcement with all that stone-faced cabinet members, you know, the ashen looking, standing behind them. So some, something went down in a big way there at that meeting. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it can't be forgotten that Doug Ford won leadership by an absolute hair and in fact lost the popular vote within his own conservative, you know, government. And so I can only imagine how much sort of sway some of the the remaining caucus members have given that three ministers had already resigned. And so finally, well, two two final questions. One, I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about the coalition that you built of groups that worked on this, and then I'll have one final question. Sure, yeah. So the coalition was called Yours to Protect and, you know, play off the long-term government advertising, Yours to Discover. And it, again, you know, built on this realization there was this broad-scale attack on, on public values being undertaken by this government. But we, you know, have organizations across the province that are involved in this, you know, from, you know, Barrie and Ottawa and Southwestern Ontario, and everyone with very different capabilities and capacities and histories and connections to the community. But I think what is common to all of that is that connection to community, you know, knowing their neighbors, knowing city council members, knowing the local media, and but being able to coordinate together so that common themes, common messages, common advertising materials, common digital approaches can be shared and used to move the issue forward. You know, you can imagine if you've got a, you know, say a regional group that's quite sophisticated, has some of its own staff, you know, their ability to, to do things in their community might be very different than if you're in a smaller town where it's just volunteers. So you have to be able to calibrate for all of those different capacities and skill sets and, and actually provide people with what they need. And I think this campaign has done a, a great job at, at doing that and a huge amount of work, both from staff, you know, my own organization, but all of these regional and, uh, and community groups around the province as well. And of course, we can't forget at all of just how well the media dug into this story. You know, it's at a time when, you know, mainstream media has been, you know, under such constant pressure, laying off staff, you know, no resources, the way that people really dug into this story, used resources they didn't have, chased down leads, you know, traveled, traveled to Vegas, you know, you name it, you know, people did it. And I really, you know, my, my kind of faith in journalism was, you know, enhanced by the way that a number of investigative and, and beat reporters dealt with this story. So it's been really good to see that too. Yeah, for sure. And so it's our tradition on the show to give our guests the final word of the show. So I'm going to throw it to you in half a second so you can tell us, A, where we can find your work, and B, just on any last thoughts you want to leave with our listeners. But before I do, thank you so much. This has been Tim Gray, the Executive Director of the Envi- of Environmental Defense. Really appreciate your time. And yeah, any last thoughts? Well, yeah, thanks for that. You can find more about us and all the work that we do at environmentaldefense.ca. I think the last thing I would say is just remember this campaign and remember uh, that all the people that in your uh Robins who work together to make this happen and that you can actually make a difference. 
you can stop a very powerful government working with the most powerful economic interest in this province, and you can make them stop, turn around and uh, do the right thing. So join with us and we'll take on the next challenge.